<laughs> Please welcome Ben Riley. <laughs> Thank you very much, Samina. You're one of my favourite people, so this is something we're going to have to, to work on. So, yeah, look, I just want to talk a little bit about um, some research that I've been doing um, over the last two years, actually three years since I, since I came to UWA, about the changing nature of the global system, the changing nature of Australian foreign policy, and I have an abiding interest in democracy, as Samina mentioned, in all its forms. That's been sort of a lot of my, my own research. And so I thought this is an opportunity to sort of pull some of these ideas together and, and take a look at what's happening in the world today. Um, so most of you have been following what's been happening in uh, uh, Cornwall, I think it was. Is that, is that, yeah, Cornwall. We had the G7 meeting uh, last week, I think it was, and there's our Prime Minister with uh, President Biden, and I think there was an unexpected visitor who uh, popped into the uh, bilateral, uh, Boris Johnson, so we've made the best of that and turned it into a trilateral in the best DFAT tradition of just, you know, working with what you've got and... Um, uh, so, classic kind of photo of three democratic allies. They, they even kind of look similar. Our flags look similar, you know. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld once said that, um, uh, what was it? The Australian flag was the British flag at night, which I thought... <laughs> so, so there's a, 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 in one sense, it's a sort of familiar kind of um, picture of... Uh, of our three democracies that have worked uh, off and on. Uh, uh, the last four years with the Americans has been a bit tricky, but off and on together, of course, for, um, uh, for decades and in some ways centuries. But interestingly, the G7 is not really set up as an alliance of democracies. It's a, it's a, it's a grouping of advanced economies. It's never really much talked about democracy. In fact, um, it was a G8 for a while, and Russia was in for a while, and then they got kicked out. Um, but they've tried to refashion themselves of late. Really, this, this has all happened in the last year or so, of actually being a grouping of major democracies in the world. And if this statement that came out, if, I don't know if you can read it all, but it's quite... This was a statement on open societies that the G7 plus the other invitees, of which Australia was one of four put out on the importance of open societies. And it's one of the most progressive statements in favour of liberal democracy you will ever read. Um, human rights for all, uh, democracy, uh, free, uh, uh, free and fair elections, rights to assemble, rights to organise, rights to associate, social inclusion, equal opportunity, gender equality, freedom of expression, rule of law... Goes on and on and on. This is this is like something out of the sort of UN's like dream. This is like this is what we want. Um, so it's interesting that this is the language that we're seeing coming out of the the G7 meeting, um, because and it's new. It's new. It's not the sort of language that we normally associate. And the G7 normally about economic co coordination and, and, and globalization. Um, uh, and, of course, our own Prime Minister has also been using newish language. I say newish because he's given a couple of speeches along, uh, on similar themes of, of, of recently. Um, some of you would have been at the speech he gave here in Perth um, a fortnight ago, um, where he talked about a world order that favours freedom, he talked about uh, the foundation for deeper cooperation amongst liberal democracies lies in the shared beliefs in binding values that we strive to live by. Um, uh, working together, our countries can support, defend and renovate a liberal rules-based international order, a world order that favours freedom over autocracy and authoritarianism. These are, these are you know, unusually bold and big statements from an Australian Prime Minister. What do they remind you of? Reminded me of some of these sort of things that the great speeches we've heard from American presidents over the years. I thought, I thought the Prime Minister gave a great speech. So here's, here's John F. Kennedy back in 1961 at his inaugural. Let every nation know that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship to assure the survival and success of liberty. 
That's, that's the classic kind of American statement that we've kind of grown up with. George W. Bush, the Bush speech after 9-11 was amazing. So I always remember it. It's worth going back to. Um, there's some lines there that about, you know, unmarked graves where fascism, Nazism and totalitarianism lie. But again, um, if you look at the final line, the advance of human freedom now depends on us. So these are, these are the sorts of high-flying rhetoric that the Americans do and have done for, forever, but we haven't actually done them that much. And in fact, most of the time I was in Canberra, DFAT would have had a heart attack to hear an Australian Prime Minister talking this way because their, their interest was engagement and engagement with Asia. Well, how do you engage with Asia if your new guiding light is democracy? It's most of not democratic. Well, it turns out if we look back, our Prime Minister only a few years ago was engaging with Asian autocrats very enthusiastically. So this is uh, Scott Morrison back in 2014 with Hun Sen, the longest lasting, most resilient autocrat in Asia. Um, Samina, you mentioned I was part of the UN operation back in 1993, which I was, and the election that we ran elected Hun Sen, and he's still there. 25, 30 years, I don't even know, 25 years later, yeah. Amazing. So this was back in 2014, not long ago, when I would say a more uh, conventional Australian foreign policy was in place, whereby, yeah, we were coddling up to whoever we could coddle up to in Asia. In this particular case, I think a particularly bad piece of international policy that most of us would like to forget, but let's remember it as a, as a learning lesson, we shelled out tens of millions of dollars given to Cambodia to take, I think, one refugee. One refugee. Yeah, unbelievably awful policy. And Morrison was our immigration minister at the time. All right. Now, that's a little bit unfair, but I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, you know, this is a relatively recent conversion. Um, and it's not just the Prime Minister. Um, uh, our Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, uh, and both as in her times as Foreign Minister and Defence Minister, has talked about shared values, shared democratic values, the Defence White Paper um, talks repeatedly, uh, uses this, this phrase repeatedly, the Foreign Policy White Paper from 2017. We went back, so, uh, academics do have to do sad things sometimes. So one of the sad things I had to do was actually go through and count computer did it, but, you know, the number of times the word values comes up in some of these documents and used to never come up, used to not exist. You go back before, before uh, 2017, never. After 2017, it's everywhere. It's almost as, it's almost as common as rules-based order. Uh, and it reached a sort of uh, pinnacle when uh, Maurice Payne and uh, uh, then US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo met for the Osmin talks last year, where we just every you know phrase was littered with these terms, um, and of course we had a quad meeting recently, a quad leaders meeting, uh, where the the quad, you all know the quad, you know the Australia has joined with the US, but also with India and Japan, and we we make. Uh, we, have, we have an increasingly frequent series of, uh, of meetings of, uh, of foreign ministers, officials, and in this case of, of uh, prime ministers and presidents. Um, and they too made this statement, joint statement, that we strive for a region that is free, open, inclusive, anchored by democratic values. So this, is, this has become the new rhetoric uh, by which we, I think, are not only... Uh, portraying ourselves, but also an organising principle um, for Australia and, and for the other countries involved. So, we're striving for a region that is free and anchored by democratic values. That's what we're saying. And we said it quite recently, in March. What else happened in March? Well, there was a military coup in Myanmar. 
you know, there was an election in Myanmar. The NLD won, Aung San Suu Kyi won. The military thought, we don't like this. Democracy's over, we're throwing you out. She's in jail now. Australian academics are in jail. Country's on the verge of civil war. What has Australia done? We have chosen not to impose any sanctions on the military. The US has imposed sanctions, the UK, the other Europeans. We've made, we've pulled back on military cooperation, but we have not followed uh, those other countries and even the relatively minor steps that they have taken. Uh, and the rationale when the foreign ministers asked is that, well, ASEAN's not doing it and we want to stick with ASEAN. So, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm troubled. I'm troubled by what seems to be a glaring gap between what we are saying in all our official publications, what the Prime Minister is saying in these landmark speeches, which I think is terrific, by the way. I'm a big supporter of, of this sort of vision. And what we're actually doing, which is, seems to be um, uh, nothing. So, so there's a puzzle. There's a puzzle here. I'm going to try and use my remaining time to just sort of unwork this puzzle because it turns out it's not just Australia using this rhetoric. So, <clears throat> to unpick the puzzle, I'm going to give you a little bit of theory, just a small, small touch, just sort of like one slide of theory. So, there's this, there's this theory of international affairs. It's actually an empirical regularity. It's not, it's not really a theory, like, you know, deductively arrived at, although some, some thinkers have done this. It's, it's an empirical regularity, which is that when you look at all the wars that have taken place between countries, democracies go to war with autocracies all the time. Autocracies go to war with other autocracies all the time. But democracies almost never go to war with other democracies. In, in fact depending how you define democracy, maybe never, ever, in history. And as this uh, chap, uh, uh, Jack Levy, says, um, this is the closest thing we have to a law in international relations. I mean, we don't get many law-like propositions. So international relations is, you know, it doesn't conform, it's not like a science. But in this case, it's almost like a science. Democracies, a true democracy uh, is not going to go to war with another true democracy. Now, why is that? There's a couple of reasons that scholars have put forward as to why that may be so. That may be the case. Firstly, there's an argument that democracies, if you are a politician in a democracy, you have to negotiate and compromise on issues to get anything done because that's the nature of you have to persuade you have to do deals and these same qualities taken into the international arena are a much more peaceful way of re resolving disputes than brute force so maybe it's because these sort of norms have spread in the international system um, amongst democracies and there's another argument which says that uh, if you're a politician and you're elected you want to get re-elected. Going invading another democracy is not a good way to get re-elected. You know, maybe invading a nasty autocracy, maybe, you know, invade Iraq and knock out Saddam Hussein. Yeah, that'll get you re-elected. But, you know, if Australia invaded New Zealand, which we could do, right? We have military capability. New Zealand has decided not to have military capability. We could do it. And we'd win. <laughs> Would that be a popular move? Well, it sounds like it might be a popular move among some people. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's an absurd uh, an, uh, you know, idea, of course. It's so absurd we don't kind of even think, take it seriously. But no, no, no democratically elected politician is going to do something so, so absurd. So, so there is a kind of underpinning, theoretically, to the idea that democracies both should be, a world of democracies should be a lot more peaceful and that democracies should be able to cooperate 
better with other democracies and that that cooperation will indeed lead to all sorts of better outcomes. Okay, so that's not just a sort of airy-fairy, pie-in-the-sky idea. It's actually based on some uh, pretty hard data going back quite a long way. And I think that helps to explain what's going on, maybe not for Australia, but that's going on in the, in the international system at the moment because there are all these organisations that are now redefining themselves as alliances of democracies in one way or another. So let me run through a few. NATO. I thought NATO was a military organisation set up to deter, you know, Soviet aggression and the Warsaw Pact and then since the collapse of the Soviet Union has stayed on as a common defence uh, arrangement between the European countries and also America and Canada. No, 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 it's not. Have a look on their website. Have a look at what uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the... Uh, the Secretary General is saying it is the most successful alliance based on shared democratic values in world history. And those values are freedom, democracy and the rule of law. Nothing about military capability. Um, they want to work more closely with us on the other side of the world. Hope they don't want us to like get involved in European conflicts and you know defend Ukraine or something because... They want to work more with Japan, with South Korea. The same names keep coming up. And, of course, they've called out China. I'm trying to get through this talk without mentioning China. Much. Much. All right. The OECD. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Not about values or democracy or rule of law. Same thing's going on. Uh, the OECD is not an intergovernmental organisation devoted to economic cooperation. No, 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 no. It is a force for good in the world whose core purpose is to preserve individual liberty. Now, I think this is a, you know, an admirable reframing. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to poke fun at any of this. Um, I think there is much merit in this. But something is going on here when the OECD... Uh, starts talking about democracy and uh, and liberalism. And in, in some ways it makes sense. You know, uh, open liberal economies, open liberal politics, it, it does make sense. Intellectually, that makes sense. And Matthias Cormann is, a, a, you know, a very articulate um, uh, advocate of that. And so, um, you know, I think we can expect more of this. Uh, what else? Well, the Americans are talking about holding a summit of democracies. It's not clear who they're going to invite. <laughs> no, really, this is, this is, this is a problem. Um, and it's actually a problem for us, as I'll come to in a minute, because some of the countries that uh, we are, have... Um, are, you know, putatively now much closer to as, as fellow democracies are, are, you know, marginally democratic at best. And, of course, the United States is one of them. The United States has been through an awful four years and is continuing to go through an awful, uh, highly partisan, highly polarised political process. Now it's descended mostly to the, to the states, um, um, Biden's voting reform bill just got knocked back in the Senate, but some of the uh, Republican-controlled states are, are adamant that they're going to pass quite severe voter restriction laws that would be unthinkable in Australia or indeed in most other, you know, long-established democracies. Um, I came across this, uh, this graph, I don't know if you can see it, but from an organisation that I work with called VDEM, that does, gathers a lot of data on democracy, which just charts the eroding commitment to democracy amongst Republican voters and how since uh, the mid-2000s, I, I would imagine since Obama's election, um, there has just been this precipitous decline in commitment to the basic ideas of democracy um, amongst Republicans. And it's an interesting graph for another reason, because it 
it suggests that Trump is a symptom, not a cause, of the problems in American democracy. You know, it happened. It, it was happening before Trump, uh, and um, you know, it's not clear now whether there are, is a majority of Republican voters who actually are in favour of uh, of genuine. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Institutionalized democracy. It's a real. It's a real problem for America. How long have I got, Samina? Huh? Good, because I've got lots of slides. Great. Okay. Terrific. Okay. So, so we we are doubling down on this concept at a time when democracy, at least in our our major, you know, our major alliance partner, is probably weaker than it's been. You can't say ever with America, but you know, for a very long time. Um, and it's not just America. Um, here's some data from another organisation, Freedom House, that measures these things, that found that 2020 was the worst year for democracy since the end of the Cold War. In, in other words, more countries became autocratic than became democratic by far, and that this is a trend that's been going on for the last 15 years at least. So, we have, we have an interesting situation. We have an interesting situation where rhetorically we are talking up a concept which empirically is actually uh, struggling. Struggling mightily in some countries, but also struggling in a broader sense around the world. Um, This is the Economist's uh, map of democracies, full democracies, flawed democracies, hybrid regimes, and authoritarian regimes. So basically, the, the warmer the colour gets, the more autocratic the country is. And you can see there's a, a real, now a, basically a whole arc of different kinds of autocracies spreading through mainland Asia, the Middle East, uh, large parts of Africa, uh, and even into parts of Europe. And that's significant because if we look at the Belt and Road Initiative that China has been propagating so enthusiastically, including until recently with the government of Victoria here in Australia, where is the Belt and Road going? Oh, that's interesting. It's kind of going to the same places, same part of the world, same parts of the world. Uh, parts of, through Central Asia, Middle East, parts of Africa, a lot of Asia. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, a congruence between regime type and geopolitics emerging in the world that I think is um, maybe actually the, the building blocks of the new world order may be indeed uh, the division between democracy and autocracy. That's quite possible. But if it is, if that really is the building block of the new world order, then we have another problem. Because if we're talking about Genuine democracies that had all of those things that you remember my opening slide with the list from Cornwall free and fair elections, freedom of association, liberal values, say what you like, you know, throw out a government you don't like, protect minorities. There aren't many of us left. This is the economists' depiction of the full democracies in the world today. Well, a couple of ones are missing. The United States, no, doesn't make the cut. India doesn't make the cut. France doesn't make the cut. <laughs> Italy doesn't make the cut. Italy's actually signed up to the Belt and Road, uh, along with a number of other Southern European countries. So, you know, you can argue with The Economist. Uh, who does make the cut? We make the cut. New Zealand, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Taiwan is actually the top-ranked democracy in Asia on most of these indicators, which is, you know... Something to think about. Uh, but not, ma you know, not many others. A handful of European countries, the Nordics. Those are the full democracies left in the world today, according to our friends at The Economist. 
So, not many of them. And also, starting to look a little bit like the old kind of, you know, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Yeah? And, of course, our friends in China have not missed this. So, the Global Times, which uh, I'm sure you all read, uh, was praising our Premier uh, recently. Uh, the Global Times has uh, decried a lot of these emerging democratic clubs and particularly doesn't like the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Network, which is, of course, the countries that I just mentioned. Um, you know, it says the usual things. A criminal gang. <laughs> uh, a US fan club. But I think more damagingly and possibly more accurately, it also says, uh, you know, it looks a lot like a kind of a, 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 some sort of racial grouping or some kind of anglophone, you know, get-together of uh, former colonies or, uh, you know, um, well, an axis of white supremacy, according to the Global Times, no less. So this is, a, this is a problem too for us because our foreign policy for my entire life has been about getting away from that and trying to be engaged with our neighbours, particularly in Asia, but really globally, on a basis other than that old dominion, white, you know, um, uh, uh, period of our, uh, our founding, our history. It's been about getting away from that. It's one of the reasons we have a universal visa policy. We make everyone, even the Brits and the Americans, you have to get a visa to come to this country. Why? In other, you know, lots of other countries, you know, I don't need a visa to go to America. I can just get a visa waiver. They need a visa to come here. Why is that? Because we do not want to have a discriminatory policy that looks like it's some kind of Anglo club. And yet, as the Chinese have pointed out, um, that's what some of these emerging groupings do look like. And they've helpfully said that the Five Eyes members will be poked and blinded <laughs> if they interfere in Hong Kong. And that's, uh, that's the Five Eyes interfering in Hong Kong. You know, an innocent panda bear just looking on. I love it. So, going back to the Quad, this is actually one of the great advantages of the Quad. Quad hasn't done a lot. It's not clear what it can do. I mean, it's it's been a, a, a series of meetings. It's put out some some uh, some some statements. We've had foreign ministers meetings. Now we've had a leaders meeting. But one thing that the Quad clearly isn't is an anglophone white club. In fact, it's the opposite. It spans not just cultures and countries and languages. It's in the Huntington kind of sense of the world. It spans civilizations. You know. India is a civilization. Japan, actually, according to Huntington, was its own civilization. Uh, no one's ever claimed Australia is a civilization. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry. But, okay, so it's, it's uh, if nothing else, it's actually a very effective riposte to this idea that a grouping of democracies is actually somehow a grouping of some old, you know, colonial. Uh, English-speaking, white, whatever phrase you want to use. Fantastic, right? Great. Quad, let's go with the quad. Except, well, I talked about the problems in American democracy before. There's even more to say about the problems of Indian democracy. And um, if we are doubling down with the Americans precisely at the time when American democracy is at its weakest, I would say that's you know, even more so with what Modi's doing in India. I don't have time. I, I do have a slide. I don't have time to go into it all, but maybe we can come back in the Q&A. But there is an awful lot of actually very distressing things that are going on in India, including things that we would associate with authoritarian regimes, such as... Um, harassment of academics, harassment of journalists, a lot of, uh, lot of online um, uh, misinformation, disinformation, uh, you name it, it's all happening. So, again, uh, lot of, a lot of problems. 
So we've got India's in decline democratically, America's in decline democratically. What about us? We're not in decline democratically. This is not a graph of our democracy. It's not. We're actually okay. We're okay. We are, we are in some ways, I think, one of the stronger electoral liberal democracies in the world. We have very strong institutions. It's part of our convict heritage is, I think, a lot of effort's gone into building up, respecting institutions, and that's very helpful when it comes to running electoral democracy. <coughs> but, as the graph says, uh, I think the, the story for Australia in all this is that we're talking big, but actually acting less than we, than we have for many years. This graph is actually a graph of our declining aid spend. And the reason I put that up is that a lot of our support for democracies in our region, in the Pacific, in Asia, Samina mentioned I used to run a centre at ANU that sort of tried to do this, came out of the aid budget. We don't actually do much of that stuff anymore. Our aid budget's been cut a lot. And what we have in the aid budget is now increasingly going into other kinds of activities. For example, we're trying to compete with China on infrastructure build in the South Pacific. Insane. Totally insane. We're not good at that. We're good with, you know, we're good at higher education. We're good with students. We're good with winning the loyalties of future leaders. We're not great at infrastructure. We can build stuff, but it will cost a fortune. And uh, I'm, I think it's a very poor way of spending increasingly scarce aid dollars. And, of course, our overall footprint is getting smaller because the power dynamics in Asia have shifted so much. You know? We are just simply not as influential as we once were. We don't have the same capacity for action as we once were. So it's not just a criticism of the government. I think this is an acknowledgement of reality. Um, just to give you a sense, you mentioned I was involved in Cambodia. I was. Um, here are some, just some pictures from some other Australian-led missions that were supporting democracy in one way or another over the years. Uh, the Ramsey Mission in the Solomon Islands, which was really about sort of state rebuilding, um, uh, the East Timor intervention, uh, Cambodia, there's general proud West Australian, great West Australian, John Sanderson. It's hard to imagine Australia playing this kind of role today. I mean, it's possible, I think, in the South Pacific in particular, if there was another kind of crisis, we would probably be, you know, you know, probably be able to, but the ambition that we had in our foreign policy in the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, I think, is, 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 is not at all clear that it's still there. Now, I just saw I've got another 25 slides, which I'm not going to do, Samina. So maybe I should... I've got 10 minutes. Okay. All right, 10 minutes. All right. I, I, I'm going to run through... I'm not going to take 10 minutes. Good. All right. So, coming back to the, the big question. No, we're not going to become a sort of liberal internationalist player in Asia. Because we can't. We don't have that kind of power. We don't have the inclination. There's very little public demand for Australia to play this kind of democracy-promoting role. There's almost zero interest in our political class. So, it's, it's just not going to happen. But we're talking the talk. Why are we talking the talk? You know why we're talking the talk. You know why we're talking the talk. It's all defensive. It talks about us. It's not about spreading democracy or upholding liberal values anywhere else. It's about here. And it's about all of these anxieties that have been in the news constantly for the last few years about Chinese... For us, it's Chinese. For, for, you know, for our friends in Europe, it's often Russia. This new interference, taking advantage of the openness of a liberal democracy and using a combination of propaganda, uh, quasi-covert local organisations, proxies, covert operations, etc., etc., to influence our democracy. That's what we're really worried about. And what we're doing is trying to find safety in numbers with our bigger democratic friends. And also, I think we can play a useful sort of role in just saying this as the most China-exposed 
of the Western democracies, this is what we're experiencing, you might experience it too. And I think that's very much actually the message that the Prime Minister has been taking around when he's been visiting the G7 and uh, these other organisations. And I, 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 I just put those two quotes up because I think two, they're two of the most perceptive uh, pieces I've read. John Garno's Prime Minister and Cabinet paper basically was the key document that started to shift elite Canberra opinion about China. And it's, it's, it's on the web if you want to read it. It, wasn't, it was classified for a long time, but it's not classified. Um, and he really talked about the, the brutal logic of Leninism when it's conducted not just within a country, but internationally. This is going to keep coming. They're not going to stop. They're going to just be, it's just going to keep coming. And we have to defend ourselves against, you know, very basic things like attempts to buy off our politicians which is still going on today. And uh, this quote from the Singaporean foreign minister, I think is very relevant. I think it's actually quite relevant to Western Australia. That the logic of Chinese interference reaches its end point, not when you start doing what they say, but when you change your own thinking to comply. And I think there is some evidence of that amongst some of our elites today. This is what the NED calls sharp power. Um, okay, let me finish up. What does China want? We actually know what China wants because they told us. Thank you, Chinese embassy in Canberra. Very helpfully, they told us. Uh, what could we do to get back in China's good books? They said, well, you have to reverse your foreign investment regulations so that we can buy up anything we want. You have to allow Huawei to... Uh, be part of your security network. Huawei, of course, has to conform to a directive from the Chinese government under Chinese law, so that would be very helpful for China, not very helpful for us. Get rid of our foreign interference legislation. Stop politicians talking, so no freedom of speech. Get rid of a free media. We don't like that, so we've got to get rid of the free media. Uh, uh, stop being friends with the Americans. Uh, no think tanks. Uh, unless they're pro-China, and um, abandon the rule of law. Yeah. So if we do all of those things, then we can be friends with China. Okay. So that's the stakes that we're playing with. What have we done? I think the, the most... I actually think possibly the most consequential... Uh, um, the thing that this government will be remembered for. I don't, it hasn't made many big policy uh, you know, reforms. Actually, it hasn't made any big policy reforms domestically that I can think of. Maybe someone can tell me one. Um, but it has been very strong on this issue. And the foreign interference legislation that was passed under the Turnbull government, uh, I think, is potentially a model we'll see. But it's the sort of changes that we, we needed to make, um, you know, until we passed this legislation, the two biggest donors to our political parties were Chinese billionaires, both of whom were linked to the Communist Party. Insane, completely insane. We had to make these changes. Uh, you can't allow state governments to make foreign policy uh, MOUs, even though they're meaningless. So get rid of that. The new Espionage and Foreign Interference Act provisions um, are, well, we'll see. We'll see how influential they are. Um, uh, making uh, 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 lobbyists for foreign powers register, I think, has been a very useful step. Whether it's possible to actually get convictions, we don't know yet. Um, Here's some friends of some of ours. Um, I don't know if, how many of you know these people. Anyone know these two? Mark Beeson knows these people. A few others know these people. Okay. Mark, why do you know uh, Chen Hong? Chums. Your chums. Have you been in that chair? Uh, I'm not sure where this is. This is in China East Normal University with Shauket Mosulmain. Previously an anonymous member of the New South Wales Legislative Council, 
but as it turned out, a very enthusiastic attendee at East China Normal University before COVID, where he was flown over, given lots of nice meals, and was able to talk about the disgraceful Australian racist past, how we were turning into the white Australia uh, country again, but also how Xi Jinping's vision for China was something that the world needed to follow. Okay. His staffer, John Zeng, is the one person who may be prosecuted currently under the foreign interference laws. We don't know. He lost a high court challenge recently, so we will see how that plays out. Uh, Chen Hong, who has been a frequent visitor to UWA, often on our dime, paid by us to come here, has become a very enthusiastic propagandist for... He's a very good scholar, but very well-respected scholar until probably still is well-respected in China, but he's become a very enthusiastic propagandist for Beijing, often using the exact same language that we hear from uh, Chinese spokesmen. So he lost his visa rights to Australia. He can't come to Australia anymore, which is, <laughs> he's unhappy about. Um, so I think that will probably be the enduring... Uh, we'll see how consequential it is, uh, step from Australia. Uh, we're not going to become liberal internationalist. Um, so the conclusion, uh, well, there is something going on at the international level. There's lots of reframing of uh, these organisations as alliances of democracies. There's a lot of other things going on that I didn't get a chance to talk about, but I'd be happy to talk about them in the Q&A if people are interested. Thank you. Well, wonderful presentation. Thank you very much. Yeah, you can sit down if that's what you... Yeah, definitely. Maybe I'll give you this mic in that case. I guess everyone would agree that his discussion of the return of the idea of democracies, the internal contradiction that we may see, but also the reason behind it, especially as the significant focus of Australian policy or even foreign policy. So in that sense, I think you've opened up a lot of areas that people can talk about. So I'll, what I'd suggest is please raise your hands, make sure you do identify yourself, and you're not allowed. <laughs> Flavia, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and it has to be a question and not a long discussion, because he's the, the one who has to discuss it. Right. Thank you, Samina. So I am Flavia Bellianizum, and I'm a teaching fellow here at the University of Western Australia and AWIA commissioning editor for the Australian Outlook. Thank you very much, Ben, for your brilliant presentation. Uh, when you're talking about um, the decreasing democracies in the Indo-Pacific and in our region, um, you mentioned that Australia is mostly silent, uh, let's say, in the situation of Myanmar. So if you can just expand a little bit more why um, not only Australia, but Asian countries, they have been very much uh, cautious and, and not very verbal on um, the situation and, and human rights violations in Myanmar. Thank you. That's yeah, a good point, uh, Flavia. Um, well, ASEAN is not a unified actor. Um, as we know, it's split. Uh, it's split on the South China Sea, it's split on relations with China, and it seems to be split on Myanmar. And um, a split organisation that requires unanimity doesn't come up with much in terms of, uh, you know, policy or even statements. And so we're not getting much out of, out of ASEAN. And then from the the big powers in Northeast Asia, well, they have very different interests. You know, China has one set of interests, Japan would have a different set. But, you know, Asia, there's never been enthusiasm. I mean, it's hard to generalise about Asia, but really very little enthusiasm for the idea of telling other countries how they should be running their affairs because most, most Asian countries have had, you know, uh, experiences with a number of different kinds of regime type, move backwards and forwards. Um, so I wouldn't expect a lot coming out of, uh, publicly, out of organisations like ASEAN. Um, but I do think it's significant that 
at the very same time as we've upped the rhetoric on these fundamental issues, we've also just said that we are tying our policy on this issue to ASEAN's. It seems, um, I think when we were doing the interview before you used the word hypocritical. Is that right, Flavia? I seem to recall you using that word. I'll, I'll put it in your mouth. There. <laughs> Thanks very much, Ben. Uh, brilliant as ever, if I may say so. Now, if you come along to yesterday's breakfast uh, discussion, you would have heard me ask Stephen Smith about the Quad, and I suggested, being provocatively, why not ask China to join the Quad, or invite it to? And uh, if it did, they'd have to shut up about it being a club of people ganging up against them, because clearly it is. Because nearly everything you've been talking about tonight has had China in the background, as the ghost at the feast, as it were. So what do you think about that? It's a slightly ludicrous proposition in some ways, but it highlights something interesting and important because from Beijing's perspective, all of this stuff is about conspiring to keep them down, inhibit their development, and a club of the usual suspects ganging together. So what do you reckon? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I've heard you make this suggestion before and I, I think it's right up there with the Australia invading New Zealand uh, <laughs> uh, issue. But, <laughs> but I mean, the, 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 re the really exciting thing would be if they asked Taiwan to join the quote. Now that would, that would... World War III. Yeah, World War III. Well, well... Well, well, because it would clarify, I think it would probably bring on a whole heightened level of conflict. But, well, at some point, it's not impossible that America might change its stance on Taiwan. Probably not under this administration, but it's not impossible. If, if America changes its stance on Taiwan, then we're going to have to, you know, well, we're going to have huge problems, whatever happens. But... Um, <laughs> So no, I mean, I think that to the extent that the Quad is a grouping of democracies in the Indo-Pacific that's concerned with the rules-based order, but also does not want to lose its freedoms, basic freedoms. And, you know, that list, that 14-point list, I mean, let's be clear what that means. It, it was quite serious. It's saying uh, everything will be fine if you revert to, not revert, but if you act as a tributary state. You can talk about other things, just don't talk about us. You can criticise other people. You can't criticise us. You, they, you know, and, and that is the relationship that China is trying to re-establish in much of Asia. It's got a long history under the Ming Dynasty. It's a very familiar relationship, I think, for many Chinese elites. It would seem like a natural relationship. And um, that would be the sort of relationship I think they'd be very happy with with us. Um, so, yes, sorry, long-winded answer to your question. Stephen and I have different opinions on some of these things. Hi, my name's Ash. Um, I, I'm on the AAA committee. I'm referring to a slide there with a quote, the slide that had the quote from Garno and the guy from Singapore saying, what China wants is to us, for us to do what they want to do without us knowing that we're doing that. That's, or something else, that sounds like Foucault to me, um, the French philosopher. Not a, not a fan? No, no, no. Okay. I, I, I don't think so. I think, I th think um, so, so let's take it out of the realm of uh, post-structuralism. Think of the, just the idea of self-censorship. I think that's mm -hmm. part of it. I think, I think the, you know, I mean, look, we're already doing it. Let's be honest. We have not had a seminar at an Australian university, in my memory, on, uh, you know, Taiwan's independent future. I don't remember having anything on Tibet. Uh, has anyone done something on Xi Jinping's uh, millions that the Wall Street Journal reported at length, you know, the huge enrichment of his family? I don't recall ever having that discussion. And until recently, this pre-COVID, there was a good reason because we saw it, we've seen it happen at a number of universities. You would have very pissed off very nationalistic Chinese students who would be very offended and make their, their views known. Um, you could have, you know, you, you, it's not great for the business. So I think, we've, I think there's a sense in which we've already been doing it. I actually think 
It's fantastic what's happened the last couple of years with China. I think we were very much in danger of by stealth becoming, you know, if not a tributary state, then um, something like Finlandization, you know, Linda Jacobson was talking about the other day, something, something, and, and you know, we've been woken up. So I think it's actually great what's happening with China. The, the, the Premier thinks very differently about this. For example, if you look, if you listen to Premier McGowan's comments about, which is, you know, looking at it from an economic point of view, but look what happened to him. As soon as he opened his mouth, Chinese propagandists were up there saying, this is fantastic, this is very, you know, this is very good. So, you know, I think yeah, but we're, not talking about we're learning. We're not talking about Modi's fascism either. Well, I was going to, and I'd be happy to talk about Modi's fascism, but I don't think we're... I don't, well, Tim, we're not... You know, for all the terrible things that are happening in India, there is not... You know, we're not talking about Indian penetration of Australian institutions. No, we? we shared values with a fascist regime in India, which is what's going on there. What the hell is going on? Yes, well, I, I, exactly. You know, we, we, it, it's, it's just not a credible uh, line anymore. Yeah. If I, if I could, uh, I know, Tim, I can, I'll let you come in after Jai and Brendan. And if you want to, then, and then let me see, then Anna, right? Okay. Thank you, uh, Professor Riley. John Ogilvie, uh, political scientist. Um, wonderful talk. I was just wondering if you'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the problems in India now. Sure. you're hilarious. Well, so this is a slide I skipped over, and I think it's pre a, a pretty good you know, list of just some of the things that are going on in India. I mean, the loss of autonomous status of Indian Kashmir and, and some other parts of, uh, of the Indian state um, have had a terrible impact on um, the Muslim population in particular. Um, there is increasing interference in the internet, social media. There is increasing suppression of lawful protest um, there is a lot of, I mean, I think the biggest, the, the single biggest threat, personally, as an academic, is this plethora of attacks on freedom of expression that are now routine in India. If you don't toe the government line, if you have an event like this, like we're having now, if you're not saying basically the same thing as the BJP is saying, you're in trouble and you're going to cop it, you will cop it possibly from your employer. You'll certainly cop it from a lot of people in the room. Um, and then you'll be harassed online. And I, Samina, I think this has happened to you as well, right? Yeah. I, I, so there, there is just a whole series of... Um, in a way, it's kind of familiar. You know, it's a nationalist with a bit of, you know, a bit of Trump-style disinformation... Uh, combined, but, but taking place in this massive country that has previously managed to you know, have all these different religions and castes and so on living side by side, and now the, the genie is out of the bottle in a way. Once you weaponize and politicize religion and identity so directly, it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. So I, I think that's what's happening in India. Well, if I can just draw your attention to the fact that even though, you know, I, I agree with the concerns that you've mentioned, but there's still a very <clears throat> strong group within India that at least has some capacity to raise their voice, but I'm not expecting you to answer that. I just think in order to sort of provide a different way of looking at it, Jai and then Brendan okay. and then Anna. Oh, Tim, you want to come in after that? Okay. Yeah. All right, thank you so much. Um, uh, brilliant. Uh, ben, uh, was really an uh, inspiring uh, uh, talk. Uh, my name is Jay Chen, uh, uh, Ben's colleague in political, and Samina's colleague as well, in uh, political science and international relations discipline. Let me start with this Professor Chen Hong, who I know and met uh, just shortly before pandemic. Just like all other professors uh, in China, he uh, doesn't have freedom of uh, internet access. Uh, but, but because of his work uh, necessities, so he has the privilege of using some special VPN or whatever mechanism to climb the official internet blocking device called Great Firewall. 
to access Australian media, so he knows what's happening in Australia. Uh, otherwise, he can't even access Australian uh, media online. So that's the dilemma of, uh, of, of academics, uh, including this person who we call you know, propagandist. So he doesn't really have a freedom of speech and research in China. Um, okay, my question is that um, a couple of days ago, I was observing a, a June 4th protest rally to commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, which happened in Beijing. And interestingly, I noticed that multiple groups were attending there. Myanmar migrants, students, Hong Kong activists, I'm talking about just somewhere near Northbridge here, right? Thai students, migrants, Chinese, of course, Tibetans, Uyghur Muslims from Xinjiang, and Taiwanese. I mean, this has got nothing to do with five eyes or whatever. It's just pure, it's all this part and parcel of an emerging alliance called Milk Alliance. Probably have heard of it. So all these fellow Asian activists and groups and communities, whether Myanmar, or Taiwan, Hong Kong, Uyghur Muslims, and the Mongols, right? Hong Kong people, uh, this seems to all point to China as the threat, either to their thriving democracy or China is behind their, their, their home, homeland dictator or China is threatening their democracy in the case of Taiwan or China has just cracked down on their democracy. What is the question? All right, so the question, sorry about that. The question is that I know Australia cannot do much about this, but I'm thinking you know, Australia looms large-ish in issues of Tibet, Uyghur, and Hong Kong. You look at the size of the communities. So is there any likelihood of like having a Magnitsky Act to impose sanctions on those Chinese officials responsible for the crackdown in Hong Kong and Xinjiang? So that's the question. Sorry, it's a long shot. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I, I, would, I would think it's unlikely. Jay, I, I, I think I think the Australian government has handled this issue pretty well, given our economic, you know, huge economic dependence. And I, I think if we can bed down the foreign interference stuff here and kind of, so the way I see it, we, we are basically trying to rewrite the rules in terms of how China relates to us within Australia. I think that the, the most successful thing, I think this is quite likely this will happen, is that at some point we, we have these new bedrock understanding. Things can actually get back to, not how they were before, but actually I think most people in Australia want relations with China to improve. We have to live with China. We have to live with them. Um, so that would be the positive, that would be the you know, most positive scenario, I think that we have a new understanding, just don't get involved in our local affairs, um, and we keep having an economic relationship. That's certainly what I think the majority of the population wants. So, you know, a McGinsky Act or something, I don't see it. But who knows? Who knows what the future holds? You know, things could get worse as well. Now, I think since I really am not the real president, and I work really based on what these people tell me. We do not have anything more than five minutes. So what I would suggest is Brendan, Anna, and then you at them. But short questions, short answers, please. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Brendan Augustine, committee of the AIA here. A um, Couple of very quick questions. One, going back to your historical reference about our posture, uh, particularly in the region, of being, of taking a realist stand and not holding too much uh, our neighbors, uh, such as Indonesia and the like, to some democratic ideal. Now that we seem to doing it, seem to be wanting to do it through the lens of China, um, I think that opens Australian foreign policy and practice to the criticism that we're being selective. And uh, when it comes to you know West Papua, which has blown up, it's not in the media. Um, in other parts of the Nian region, 
how does that expose us and, and um, as, as it will, I guess, light the fire for people who want to raise the hypocrisy of, of, of that? And secondly, very quickly, um, China is a challenge for many, many countries. Um, a lot of analysts here in Australia think we have handled it probably the worst or one of the worst in terms of dealing with the emergence of China. So any commentary on that would be great. Yeah, very good questions. Um, well, I, in terms of your second question, I actually think we've handled it well. So, you know, uh, people can differ. If you had a few of our business magnates in the room, they would probably differ. But, uh, you know, even some of those people, I won't name them, um, who were making extremely pro-China statements only maybe 18 months, two years ago, have kind of like... Well, I mean, we've helped by China. China's helped us enormously. The crudeness and the stupidity of its this wolf warrior stuff has, you know, has shifted public opinion. You know, Australians, there are very few things that can make people go against their own economic interests. But it turns out if you are clearly disrespected um, and, you know, belittled by your, <laughs> in this case, your trading partner, by their government, and they say so consistently, people will be prepared to, you know, act even against their own economic interests. So public opinion shifted, it's fantastic. So I think, no, I think we've handled it really well. Um, in terms of your first question, look look at what we're doing in Myanmar. I, I would just say that's, that's the template. We're going to talk big, but I don't... In Asia, in Southeast Asia, I see no evidence that we're going to actually follow through in any meaningful way. We're doing less in this field, I, I can tell you for sure, we are doing less in terms of practical, you know, election assistance, rule of law, training program, all that sort of stuff. We don't do that stuff anymore, hardly. So, um, no, we talk, but we don't act. That's the new model. Thank you, Ben. Um, Anna George, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the Cold War in all its glories, where we were very happy to categorise countries and be friends with countries that in other times you would have been appalled to be anywhere close to them. So I think we have to be very careful where we're going with this. I'd also like to, when you talk about democracy and the foreign interference law, etc., etc. Um, for example, um, I come under that because as a former ambassador, you fall into that category. It's amazing how broad this category is. But leaving that aside, I also want to raise the issue of, say, Andrew Robb, who, as soon as he completed the China Free Trade Agreement, which was a very controversial agreement for what we didn't get and what we gave away, he went straight to work for them. And that goes right through our system at the moment, where the lack of our politicians going to work for all sorts of companies and corporations, and many of them are foreign or have interference that they would like to bring in to Australia for their own economic interest. I think we have to be very careful that we don't just concentrate on China bashing. It's too easy. It's much more complex than that. And the more that our academics and our politicians just use that one approach, I think we're in danger of losing something quite fundamental. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, I guess we're, we're in agreement on, on most of that, Anna. Um, you know, Andrew Robb, I mean, resigned from Landbridge when the new laws came in. I mean, so I... Well, they weren't happy about it. No, they weren't happy about it. But um, so I would say that's an example of actually, you know, behaviour shifting um, in response. And, and hopefully that is sort of a new normal. Um, you mentioned the Cold War and just, just forgive me, but I... But I this is this is the one slide I, I didn't put up, but I was going to, and this is this is from a you know another of these data efforts. But what? So green, free, purple, not free. The really interesting regions now are the ones in yellow. That's just as the Cold War, the last Cold War, was was sort of fought in the in these all these proxy countries. I think, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Uh, Parts of Eastern Europe. That's gonna. That's actually where the real competition is going to be next. I think, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, a country's. You know, if we if we think that if you accept my argument that regime type is going to become a fundamental organising principle, then there's a lot of countries that are clearly 
in one camp or the other. Not clearly democratic, not clearly autocratic, somewhere in between. Uh, and, and that's, I think, they, they're the countries where a lot of the, the next wave of activity is going to take place. That's the last question. I'll just stand up for a second because I'm hidden down here. Um, my name is Aurel Weigold, recently from the University of Canberra, now in Perth, an old friend of Samina's. So um, I want to return to um, um, the Quad and the fact that India is probably only partially a democracy now. I wanted to ask you, um, in the light of India's previous record of coming in and out of the Quad, depending on its foreign relations elsewhere, often usually with China, will India stay in the Quad this time and will it be a useful partner? Yeah. Well, I mean, remember, uh, we, we were the ones who uh, went in and out of the Quad uh, as well. Um, uh, I, look, I would imagine so. I mean, uh, India has changed its 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 uh, approach to China for very obvious reasons. <laughs> They've had an actual, you know, hot little dispute uh, on, on, on the border up in the Himalayas. Uh, so I, I I would imagine India will, as long as they have this antagonistic relationship with China, which. You know, as someone said, China's having antagonistic relationships with lots of countries. I would imagine they will be quite keen to stay involved in the Quad. Okay, I'm sure everyone would agree that we've had a real feast of ideas with Ben. That's why I don't like you, but I'm so glad you were here. <laughs> and it's really now my pleasure to invite Amy Blunden to give a vote of thanks and also pass on the gift. Well, thanks very much, Ben. Uh, as it's been mentioned by Samina and a couple of other people, brilliance, the word that's been used, and I would like to echo that. And uh, you're a great friend of the AIA. And as you can see, a lot of people look forward to hearing you speak. And we really appreciate the effort that goes into your presentations as well. So much great information there and really taking us on a bit of a deep dive as to some of the rhetoric that we have been hearing a lot lately, particularly in light of the G7 that just happened. So very timely and a lot of wonderful information. So thank you very much.